At this time, we are privileged to have a guest speaker for our uh, split sermon. Uh, please welcome to the uh, pulpit Mr. Bill Rollins uh, with the message, God's Grace in Full Measure. Mr. Rollins. I think I got myself on. Yeah, it sounds like I do. That's good. That's good. So I came here and I looked at the brochure and it says, um, what does it say, unknown or, or something? What does it say? Untitled. Untitled. So I, I didn't know how to speak on that. <laughs> Untitled. So I thought maybe we better have a title and I was asked that question and I thought, I don't have a title. In fact, you know, last night I didn't even have a message to, to bring. But I was asked if I would come and do some things and... and um, one of the scriptures that's been on my mind, I guess my wife and I, my wife Sally's out there. My name is Bill Rollins. I live in southwestern Iowa. And um, I hear there's a wedding tomorrow. That's, that's kind of the scuttlebutt that's going around. So I figured maybe we'd want to come for a wedding for some reason or another. So you get to hear me today and you get to hear me tomorrow too at the wedding. But anyway, um, I just thought I'd give that introduction. The scripture that has sort of been running around my mind and my wife's, was uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to turn there, please. That's pretty simple scripture, actually. It's just a one-liner. And it's this, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. I thought, when they ask me for a title, I can't say God's grace in vain, right? I mean, I can't do that, so that's why it's full measure. Because none of us wants to receive God's grace in vain. The word vain means, anybody? Literal translation, it means empty. Empty. God says you're not to take my name in vain, right? In the, in the, in the third commandment. That means empty. You're not to do it in an empty manner. So here we're told almost the same thing. Not take God's grace in an empty way. So I got to thinking about that and coming here before you all, and I thought, you know, this time of year, we're in just a short while, we're going to have God's grace in a huge measure poured out upon us. Why? What's that? The feast, exactly. And um, Mr. Grayson, I don't want to jump in on the top of your message about, you know, something about the, the, the feast too, but... When we see the feasts on the horizon like we do, we better know full well that that is God's grace to us. Perfectly and undeniably, His grace. Why do I say that? Because we know them. We've been keeping them. This will probably be, I think, my 42nd Feast of Tabernacles, just to put a little marker on there for you. And we, my family, we sort of build our lives around the Feast of Tabernacles, and maybe you do too. It's kind of like the last day of the feast, the eighth day, right? What do we do as a family? We get together for a meal, and then we say, where are we going next year? <laughs> I mean, it's just that much a part of who we are in our lives. And I think we need to comprehend a little bit about that. Would you... Turn to me, turn with me to Proverbs. Here's, I wasn't even thinking of going here earlier, but I, 
Some of my family knows exactly where I'm going. Proverbs chapter uh, 28. Excuse me, 29. Proverbs 29. Just one, one, uh, one verse, but it's an important one. Now, I don't, I'm not going to ask how many have King James, how many have NAS, how many have NIV, how many have ESV, et cetera, et cetera. Because I'm going to give you the BSV, excuse me, the BRV, Bill Rollins version, okay, of this. I mean, and this is provable. It's, it's definitely there. I'm going to quote it here. Verse 18, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, the word law there is Torah. Okay, so we know what the Torah is, the first five books of the Bible, really, in general. But what does it mean where there is no vision that people cast off restraint? The word restraint is an interesting word. It's in, in Hebrew, it's the word para. If you like to look words up in Strong's at 6544. And it does mean a restraint. No, actually it means to loosen, to let something go. And I think, I think it's Bullinger, if I'm not mistaken, who actually says that this word means, and I'll, I'll quote, to let something slip through one's fingers by ignoring an opportunity. So how do we apply that to the feast days? We've got an opportunity coming. We've got the Feast of Trumpets coming. Ten days later, we've got the Day of Atonement coming. Five days later, we've got the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and in my opinion, the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, yes, even for eight, is like the crowning uh, uh, time, the crowning appointment that God gives to us to share with him. And the word appointment to me means an awful lot. I make an appointment with the dentist. Guess what? It's 2 o'clock next Thursday. I'm going to be there. God says, I've got an appointment for you. And he tells us when it is. And we're going to be there. We're going to be there. Because it's important to us as God's children. Because we're going to meet with him. Wow. Wow. Now you talk about not taking God's grace in vain and put it together with this scripture in Proverbs 29. If we don't have a vision of these days, guess what we're going to do? We let something slip through our fingers. I mean, that's kind of a vernacular way of putting it. Maybe it's an idiomatic expression, but it is true. Because these are days of learning. These are days of joy. Our whole family, who's here, most everybody, some weren't, I don't know, they were off. The younger ones were off somewhere, who knows. But we got together in, in Sally and my little motel room. And we started talking about different things, sharing things, talking about the Bible, of course. It is the Sabbath, after all. And we get to talking about the importance of a relationship with God. You know, we, we take this book, 2,000 pages, and in some ways, and I don't mean to minimize anything, but this book is about really one thing, and that's forming a relationship, a close relationship, a one-on-one -on -one relationship, a perfect relationship with our Father in heaven. Because if we are one with him and his son, Jesus Christ, guess what? we got it all. We've got it all. Turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Here's what Paul told them in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And sometimes I think we, we don't comprehend that. We have every blessing. Everything. We have everything we need for godliness and holiness. Paul says elsewhere. Let's turn over to 2 Peter real quick. 2 Peter 1.3. 2 Peter 1.3 says, It is his divine power that has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and goodness. The glory of God. The glory of God. So how, how do we get there? What do we do? I think we all know. There's one word in the Bible. It's called discipleship. How many of you out there are disciples of Jesus Christ? Could I see a raising of hands, right? Okay, the whole room raises their hands because, yes, you are all disciples. What does that mean? Well, we know the word disciple sort of has the same root word as discipline, right? So if you want to be a disciple, you have to have discipline. You've got to discipline yourself to do several things. I like the top four, prayer, Bible study, fasting, and meditation, necessarily in, those or in that order. Those are, in my opinion, four great disciplines to put into our life, to draw closer to God, to solidify that relationship, and thereby not take the grace of God in vain, but to take it in full measure. And I think some of us miss out on that. All of us miss out on that. Excuse me. I raise my hand too. There are days go by when I think to myself, I haven't even thought of God today. Excuse me, we do. Sally and I get up and we always have a little Bible study and a prayer time together. So it's not like I skip out, but for the rest of the day, I'm a school bus driver. Man, do I ever need prayer. <laughs> really. And it was a dear friend of mine, and I think she'll be here tomorrow, uh, Diane. No, they're not going to be here? Okay. She asked me one day, she says, how's things going on your bus? And I, I'm like my second year. I said, whew, it can be nuts sometimes. And she's a school teacher, was. She's retired. She said, you know what I do? I always go into the classroom every morning with another teacher, and we pray. We pray for the kids. And I'll bet you in the last 10 years, I can count on one hand the days I've missed praying for the bus, safety, protection. But you know what else? for God's full measure of grace to be upon me, that I might be able to somehow, in the half hour, 45 minutes, that I have these kids under my wing, to be a mentor, to be a help, to show them something, to be someone that they can look up to. Sometimes that's strict discipline. Sometimes it's just wacky Wednesdays where I get up and tell jokes before we leave the school. Don't ask, don't ask kindergartners to do that, though. They love to come up and grab the microphone, and then they have no idea what a joke is, right? I mean, I should know that. All right. Discipline. Discipline. Discipline yourself, Bill, because I've still got a green light over here. I'm not even sure when I get up, but they said they would show me. Oh, I see it back there. I've got 18 minutes left. Discipline. 
Let's just turn it. Well, I just want to look at a couple of things about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, Matthew 5. Let's just go to Matthew. We'll look through a couple of scriptures quickly in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 1, very, very simply, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, that is Jesus, he went up on the mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. A disciple is one who is taught by God. One who is taught by God. And that's kind of where the, the word disciple really goes. It goes to the word teacher. Teaching. Receiving the teaching. Let's go over to 8. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 21, another disciple came to him <clears throat> and said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, excuse me, I, uh, Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. A disciple is what? One who follows Messiah, one who follows Jesus Christ. Sometimes, where's he going? Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it looks like it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard place to go. Sometimes you get a phone call at 9 o'clock at night and says, can you have a message for this church here, you know? And I'm thinking, well, I, 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 how, how can I say no? How can I say no? And so sometimes we have a hard row to hoe. Let's go to chapter 10, Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 24, it said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. For it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. You need to be like Jesus Christ. That's why reading the Bible daily, figuring out who he is, where he is, getting that relationship down with him and with the Father is so, so important. So what does it cost you? What does it cost me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? How, do we, how are we going to look at that? Well, that's a difficult one. I'm going to go to Luke. I'm going to go to Luke. In Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we have what I call, at the end of the chapter, the three prerequisites for discipleship. We want to know exactly how to do this? He tells us, verse 25, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I find that fascinating because I find a very, very relevant scripture in the book of Exodus on that. Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. I'm not going to turn there. You can write that down and look it up. But basically what it says was, Moses comes down off the mountain, right? And what does he hear? He hears the sound of a riot, an orgy, whatever it was. And he throws the Ten Commandments down. And he says, basically, I need to stop this. Who is on the Lord's side? Who's on Jehovah's side? 
And the Levites said, we are. And then they went through the camp. And they started putting down this riot, this orgy, the things that were going on. Because, and the Bible says this, you can turn over to Deuteronomy 33, verse 9. Let's do that real quick. Deuteronomy, I think Deuteronomy 33, verse 9. This is Moses' blessing on the tribes, chapter 33. And when he gets to Levi, Levi, he says this in verse 9. Levi said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. Literally, I do not see them. And after the, he did this, not recognizing his brothers or not apprehending his brothers or acknowledging his own children, but he watched over the word and guarded your covenant. And this is a re reflection of what, that happened, what happened in Exodus chapter 32. He had no regard for, he was there, they were there, the Levites were there to restore order in God's camp, to bring back some purity into God's camp, to follow God and to have that relationship with God in that camp. Back over to Luke. Second prerequisite. Going back to that first one, you know, the, the last thing, we, we, we kind of worry a little bit and strain a little bit about, you know, mother and father, wife, children, brothers and sisters. But the last one there, the last one in verse 26 is, and yea, even his own life. Now you know what? I said this is going to be my 42nd feast. 42 and a half years ago, I gave up my life. I literally gave up my life for the Messiah and for his heavenly father, for my heavenly father, to take upon me the role that he wanted me to take on. And you did too. You were all buried in baptism. You were all crucified with Christ. These aren't just silly words that somebody wrote down. These are real words for all of us. Give up our life. God calls us to go this direction, and we think, ah, I can't do that today. No. We're His. We belong to Him. We've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Second, verse 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You ever have a cross to carry? Probably you have. Sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes they're very difficult. But guess who else had that implement to carry? Once again, it was the Levites, wasn't it? Because this, this cross that he's talking about is an implement of sacrificial, this true sacrificial system, because he is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Levites, what did their job was? Their job was to pack up the tabernacle and carry it through the wilderness. They carried that cross. It wasn't a cross. It wasn't a stake. But it was the implementation of a sacrificial system that they carried, typifying what was to come in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So then we go on a little bit in Luke here. And we find out Verse 33, the third prerequisite for discipleship. It says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Somebody said to me, you know, you really got, we've got to be willing to give up. I said, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say we have to be willing. It says we have to give it up. 
And guess who fits that bill? Yeah, you guessed it. You're ahead of me. It's the Levites, right? Because what did they not have? They did not have an inheritance in the promised land. They did not get one bit of land for themselves. As a tribe, they had some land. But they didn't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Israel at that time in the promised land. So it's like all three of these prerequisites filled the Levites. So I, I get this picture that somehow we need to study a little bit more about the Levitical structure and who they are. Maybe. Maybe that'll help. But I think these three things are a good starting point for discipleship. Okay. So let's get back. Let's get right back to the beginning. I'd actually like to end this before the little thing goes off to say, wow, I beat the timer. It'd be the first time, wouldn't it be? I mean, it'd be the first time. Yeah, okay, family. Yeah, shush. <clears throat> and it probably won't happen. But we'll get close. We'll get close. You know, I, I said we don't want to let these festivals slip through our fingers. I said that if you don't have a vision for them, you will let them slip through your fingers. And I'm trying to build into the whole concept of what you really want to have as your vision for these particular days, this year, coming up now. Not next year, not the year, but who knows about those years? We're probably close enough now that maybe we can see they will come through and we will participate in them and we will have a vision. And our vision is to draw close to God. Because guess what, folks? He is there. He is there. He's there at every one of those festivals because they are called appointed times. And he has made an appointment for all of us to meet there with him. What a joy. What a joy that is. Has anyone here on your way home from the Feast of Tabernacles ever suffered something that's called the post-feast blues? Would you please, if you have, please raise your hand. If you don't know what that is, I'm sorry for you because I know what the post-feast blues truly is. It occurred to me, we were out at a, about, what, four years ago, in uh, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, last day of unleavened bread. Had a beautiful time. We, had, we spent four days out there for the last part of the feast. And they had, a, they had a nice program set up. And we're heading home. And I turned to Sally and I said, I just got the post-feast blues. I've never had those for the days of unleavened bread before. Because usually they're sort of kept at home, right? I mean, you folks probably gather here, I'm guessing, most of you. And you have them right here. And it's only a one-day thing. But we had just had four days with brethren, scripture, study, singing, fellowship, loving. And I said, I got the post-feast blues. And it dawned on me right then and there. I say me. Maybe it was Sally. One of us said, you know what we just experienced? And listen closely, folks. We just experienced a taste of the glory of God at that feast. And I got to thinking all the way back. How many times coming home from the Feast of Tabernacles? It's like, I don't even want to go home now. How can you go home? How can you go back to your job? What did I just experience? Eight days of absolute amazing joy in the presence of my Heavenly Father. And now I've got to go back to work and my boss is going to say, so how's your vacation? He just doesn't get it. I, and I'm, I'm not hard on him. I say, well, we had a great time. We had a great time. But guess what? It really wasn't a vacation. Let me explain a little bit to you. Not too far. If he asks more questions, oh, cool. Now I can keep going further, right? Think about that. Think about tasting God's glory, would you please? 
that he has it there at your, or all the festivals, all of them. And if you really connect with him, if you really are a disciple of the Messiah, if you really want that full measure of relationship with our Heavenly Father, you can reach out and grab that glory. It's there. And I have seen it on several occasions at the feast. To my shame, out of 41 feasts, I can probably count four that I go back on and I thought, wow, that's what that was. That's what that was. That was the glory of God being shown to me. Visually, no. What does Paul say? Oh, don't look at the physical things, right? Cast your eyes upon those things which are unseen. Because God's glory is unseen. But somehow, you know it, somehow it's felt. It's felt within. It's felt on the inside because it's not something to see. Paul says the things, things that are seen are temporary. All of this out there, every last bit of it. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So when you go to the feast this year, practice on trumpets, right? Practice on atonement. Sometimes atonement is a little difficult. I understand that. But when you're there and you've got, I don't know where you go, you've got 300 people, you've got 150 people, you've got 25 people, it doesn't matter. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's God's crown. And you've got eight days to grab a hold of that glory, to take it in, to talk to God as much as possible, to know that he is near, that he hears our singing. He hears our prayers. And he wants us to come to him in love, in joy, in faithfulness. Yeah. To finish up, I asked someone once, I said, do you love God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your soul? I like the word life better than soul. I think probably we all know why. I don't know if I do or not. I mean, and I said, well, yeah, I know. We're all striving to get there, aren't we? I said, but let me say something. I've never, you, you, and you, those of you who work for somebody else, right, you would always say, you know, the best bosses are the ones who would not ask us to do something they were not going to, could do themselves. Guess what? God loves us, his children, his called out ones, the ones that have come forward to be his. He loves us with all of his heart, with all of his strength, and with all of his life. And that's his promise to us. Go to the feast this year and think about it. I want a vision. I need a vision. What's my vision? I want to draw closer to God. I want to taste the glory. I want to be here with him. This isn't my vacation time. This is holy, holy time for us to be with our God. left. Anybody got any questions? <laughs>